All right, I don't really have any bit. Uh, I gave us, since there's so many Van Dykes in this show, I named us in Clean Feed. We're now also Van Dykes. I see that. My joke was going to be, oh, there's uh, there's 10 of us now, but... <laughs> okay, well, whoops. <laughs> All right. I don't have an opening bit, so... Well, let's get started. It's been a while since we've done this, so... I know, in we the actual uh, format. I, I was editing the Larry Sanders one, and I... In the where we just talk about random stuff, I said that I got eight teeth drilled, and that's a really long time ago now, so... Oh, God, yeah, I know. Yeah, you were just starting your new class. Oh, I can't believe it's been that long, and I'm glad we yeah. did the little special episode, but... Uh, yeah, we're getting back into it. I'm happy to be able to do the f- actual thing that we're doing here. Yeah, for real. Even if it's uh, Diagnosis Murder this week. <laughs> you you want to do the intro? Welcome to episode 10. That's right. 10 episodes plus bonus episodes, but we've actually made it to 10. Well, if you're hearing this. <laughs> Welcome to episode 10 of 90 Schmaltz, where two 90s guys do a belly flop on the shows we grew up watching from after school specials, TGIF, and Saturday morning cartoons. We talk about nostalgia, bad acting, and why these shows were radical. Oh, and we did it. And I was thinking that we add to it to better explain what we do on the show. Like, All right, go for it. You know, we belly flop on our favorite 90 shows and less favorite 90 shows uh, where we only watch the top rated, lowest rated episodes and we talk about them and we give you a little bit of background on the show production and cast. That is informative. We do have to work on that right up, but yeah, you can, you can, uh, you can clean that up, but I think what you've, you've been very clear. Or clear enough. And uh, if you have been joining us week after week and you enjoy what you're listening to, please give us a rating wherever you're listening to your podcast. That really helps us out with the algorithm. Makes us a little more discoverable. And feel free to check out our website at www.90schmaltz.cool. That's 90S-C-H-M-A-L-T-Z dot cool. C-O-O-L. Or don't forget to send us an email uh, if you want to share your thoughts at 90schmaltz at gmail.com. I'm Ned. And I'm Jeff. And this week, we are talking about... Diagnosis Murder. Yes, sir. description yeah diagnosis murder first appearing october 29th 1993 on friday well which is a friday on cbs it ran for eight seasons or 178 episodes um, until may 11th 2001 that's a lot yeah it is a lot um, diagnosis murder is a single camera mystery medical comedy crime drama television series where we follow a smiling doctor and his chiseled chin police investigator son as they smartly solve mysteries and crime while also saving lives in the most lighthearted, serious way possible. Do we remember this one? I'll let you go first. I remember it, but I don't think I remember it from the 90s. This is like something you go over to your grandma's house and it's on the television and that's where you yeah. watch it, um, which was sort of like the Golden Girls for me back in the day. My grandmother or great aunt always had that on the TV at night. This is definitely a, a grandma show. 
the, it's the murder she wrote, but not quite as good crew. It really is. I mean, obviously we have that one actor in there, but uh, the rest of them, maybe not so much. And so I remember watching this with my parents. This was something we tuned into weekly. Uh, but after doing more research on it and seeing what else you could be watching, I think it would have been like season three, four, or five that we were watching it, like on, and it was on Thursdays. Because uh, I remember the second Doctor better than the first Doctor. And the clarinet. You really remember the clarinet theme? Yeah, music. the clarinet intro is my favorite part of the show. It's delightful. I think I like the drier, boring version that makes it feel more like a crappy soap opery crime drama mystery show. Does this one have a VHS back? It does not. And uh, you did the research on this one. I'll let you cover it. Oh, uh, great. Okay. So, no VHS, and the DVD release schedule on this one is very strange. Seasons one through three were released in 2006 and 2007. And then the rest of it wasn't released until 2013 and 2014. And the 2013 list price for the complete series was $300. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> God. Uh, but that's really the only way you could you can own this. Uh, there's, It's not for sale. It's only streaming on Pluto TV. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of that broadcast notes. But And the strange thing about it is apparently everyone complains about the fact that this, even the complete DVD, has no subtitles at all. Wait, no really? special features, the whole no DVD subtitles. section has yeah. no subtitles? So if you can't hear, you're out of luck. Oh my god, do you know how many neighbors that's going to piss off? Long. You guys turn it all the way up. a lot of old ladies with the TV on way louder than they needed to be. <laughs> all right, so I've got what else we could be watching. I like that you clipped this stuff here. Um, yeah, it's first couple seasons. First three seasons were Friday nights at 8 o'clock, which I would have thought was a good time slot. I think of Friday night in the 90s as a prime time to watch TV, and it turns out that's true for one block of programming and that's TGIF and the rest of it is incredibly weak. Yeah, you have the posting of all this and it's a it's astonishing how everybody just did not want to fight ABC on their programming. This is from 1994. We've got Diagnosis Murder up against Unsolved Mysteries and Mantis, which I do want to get to. Uh but the the real treat on this thing is Family Matters and Boy Meets World in the same hour. And that's why I think I didn't watch this until episode uh, season four or five is because there's no way I was watching Diagnosis Murder over Boy Meets World. No. Uh, when I was nine or ten years old. And Family Matters for that matter. Uh, and then we've got Lonesome Dove. Some sort of adventure series that I'm not familiar with. Bunch of movies. A bunch. I haven't heard of some of them. Uh, the Jerk. That's great. Revenge of the Pink Panther was the other one on there. We've got Keeping Up Appearances. A program called Adam Smith, which is an economics program. Dick Cavett News, Wild West, uh, Under Scrutiny with Jane Wallace. Unsolved Mysteries. Barbara Walters, Interviews, yeah, Golf, Video Countdown, I Dream of Jeannie. So it's really uh, an impressively poor counter lineup. So, I mean, it, good for them. They were probably, the people who didn't want to watch the Black People Show Family Matters probably watched Diagnosis Murder instead, if they were a family audience. Maybe. Or you watched Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, there wasn't much else here. I always thought Unsolved Mysteries was something you caught on like at like 1 p.m. on a Saturday when nothing else, when it was raining out. Or in the middle of the night. Yeah, the idea of watching that in primetime is very strange to me. Yeah, I don't think it's interesting enough to want to watch in primetime, to be honest with you. <laughs> no. It was a good lineup, though. I mean, 
to remember that it's like Family Matters, Boy Meets World. That's what I mean by that. Yeah, it was Family Matters, Boy Meets World, and I didn't clip the rest of it, but I think it was step by step. I pretty much can't remember memories. the the fourth on all the Friday and Saturday blocks. I think nine thirty. Nine o'clock was my usual bedtime, and nine thirty was like a special bedtime. So, yeah, you got to. That uh, was the I, I one, rarely cost. That was the one night of the week where I think I got to stay up till like you know ten o'clock. I would rarely catch the fourth show in the SNCC or TGIF block. That was a special occasion thing for sure. This series is produced by Dean Hargrove Productions, the Fred Silverman Company, and Viacom. And Dean Hargrove and Fred Silverman worked together on a whole bunch of shows in the eighties and nineties making the Perry Mason series of movies that continued on for way longer than I would have thought. Uh, they were still making those things. Like Columbo, I'm noticing, which I'm watching through. They just kept making movies of it every four or five years. There'd be another one. There'd be another batch of three or something. Why not if they're still giving because, you money yeah, for it? Uh, hey, you know, you need you need to pay for a nice vacation. Uh, you go work for three weeks. Uh, so they did that. They did Matlock which is a very popular show, justifiably. Uh, Jake and the Fat Man, The Father Dowling Mysteries, and Diagnosis Murder. And to keep things simple, I think we should refer to these, all these group of people as the Mystery Men. Uh, because we're going to be finding out that almost everyone involved with these shows are involved with this group of shows. Everything, all the way through. And Fred Silverman... Fred Silverman in particular is pretty interesting. He was he oversaw all three major networks in the 70s and greenlit a ton of big shows, including Scooby-Doo, I think was one that he was particularly proud of, but just dozens, uh, dozens of shows throughout. Is that like one of the over 15 years. longest actual franchises in television, Scooby-Doo? Like continuously relevant and running, I would say very... I, I, there might be something big I'm missing, but yeah, it seems like everything else from there, like the Flintstones, the you know, like Looney Tunes, other than Disney. Disney. Well, I mean, I guess Bugs Bunny too, but like Scooby Doo is just. But Bugs like, Bugs Bunny's people still like Scooby Doo. I don't think anyone actually still likes Bugs Bunny. It's like the unaltered universe. It's almost always the same format, right? It's yeah. the mystery. It's all the same gang. It's very clear, and they can do fun things with it. You know, you got the the weird crossovers from the '70s where Kiss shows up. My mom was a huge fan of Scooby Doo. They just keep I, they keep making them. There's there's new Scooby Doo's still being made. So and you know what? They're pretty good. They they, they <laughs> they're not bad at all for sure. Yeah, it's a it's a solid format and a it's a a good group of weirdos to write about. So one other interesting thing about Fred Silverman I found is that while he was overseeing the networks that he, while he was there, that's uh, when they stopped wiping tapes, which I guess is one of the hard things for preservation. Old, especially game shows, they would just tape over the same tape and use that to broadcast or to send out to syndicated places right. and then receive the tapes back, tape over them again, and send them out again. So they'd essentially just lose programs. They didn't care about keeping them, uh, and it's just officially like 100% lost media unless a syndication network didn't send one of the tapes back. And that was mid-70s to, I think, like, the like seventy nine. Yeah, there's a lot of that lost that media. these that the three networks really stopped doing that. Pretty interesting. I don't know if he was responsible for it, but uh, I'm glad they stopped it because I love watching old old stuff that no one really cared about. Yeah, I'm a big. That's fan. some of my favorite stuff, which yeah. is probably why we have a podcast where we talk about it. So this show had a weird uh, 
a weird journey to becoming a show. I know these pilots are crazy. Yeah. This show started as a backdoor pilot in the series Jake and the Fat Man. It was season four, episode 19. It never enters my mind. And uh, Jake and the Fat Man is a show about a large prosecutor and his cop friend inspired by a character from Matlock. So that show wasn't a backdoor pilot, but they did a backdoor pilot that they then retooled into Jake and the Fat Man. Yeah, and it's what? William Conrad and uh, Joe Penny, or is right? Uh, Yeah, William Conrad and Joe Penny. And we watched that first Diagnosis Murder Never Entered My Mind episode. We won't talk about it too much, but... It's pretty funny because the actual characters of the show get, I think, three or four minutes of screen time. And one of them is in just one scene. Yeah. He gets uh, he gets about four lines of dialogue and then is gone. He's there for 20 seconds. And William Conrad looks miserable. Yeah, he's looking real unhealthy. Dick Van Dyke as the doctor uh, is just constantly berating him for not sticking to his diet. Well, he was his doctor for 20 years, so at this point. <laughs> he says, didn't you read my diet? guidelines and he says i read them every morning while i have my eggs benedict oh man i missed yeah. that scene in there but yeah yeah uh this that that episode aired march 20th 1991 and then afterwards they before they made the series they made three tv movies uh the first one was called diagnosis of murder and it aired on january 5th 1992 the house on sycamore street aired on may 1st 1992 and a twist of the knife on february 13th 1993. Uh, the series proper began on October 29th, 1993. And it aired on Friday nights for the first three seasons before moving to Thursday nights for the remainder. Which is definitely where I would have watched it because Thursday night is where you, you're sitting around at the TV with the family and you're like, anything's fine. Yeah, yeah. Thursday's a little different than a Friday. Uh, and this show's hard to find streaming. Like, we had to, we had to uh, scrounge it off the internet some pretty wretched rips uh, because, and my, this is me speculating a little bit, but it plays on me TV, which is a digital over the air sub channel. It's like 9.2 or something like that. If you ever use the digital channels, it's one of those other, and it specifically focuses on playing old stuff. Leave it to beaver, my three sons, three stooges, green acres, Hogan's heroes, the Waltons, Perry Mason, Matlock. And I was looking through a lot of these shows, and they're actually, a lot of those are are hard to find. Some of them, some of the bigger ones are on Tubi, and then a couple of them are on Pluto TV or Fubo TV, but some of them are just not available, period, outside of perhaps buying it episode by episode from YouTube or something like that. Which is crazy. And, and I wonder if they just, if that's their business strategy is to like lock these things up so completely that you're the only place that old person who just wants to watch Diagnosis Murder, they got to go there. Yeah, maybe. A lot of these are on Philo TV because I think Me TV might be on Philo TV, which is that kind of live TV esque streaming service. I wonder if there's any like business relation or with Hallmark because if you're to watch this on cable, this is the only place that you can find it oh, yeah. on cable as well. So I don't know, maybe business wise, they're subsidiary or something like that. Could be. I don't know. We didn't this, look into this that. Thing, this thing gets really strange, and I yeah, I didn't look too hard into it. There's dozens of MeTV Plus and MeTV2 affiliates, so... Hmm. Yeah. It's AM stations, radio stations. Uh, broadcast media is real weird. It's fractured, but yet owned by three, one of four people, right? Yeah, it, uh, it's, essentially. It's dozens of uh, dozens of holding companies. and. Uh, the show was created by 
Joyce Burnett, uh, who has 16 writer credits, which include Matlock, Father Dowling's Mysteries, Jack, Jake and the Fat Man. <laughs> the Mystery Men bunch. Yeah, the whole Mystery Men bunch, which kind of just goes through for most of this stuff as we'll go through it. Um, yeah. Music and theme music is by Richard Dick Denebictus. He's got 82 total composer credits, but he did the theme, um, you know, and he also worked on Matlock, Jake and the Fat Man, and Father Dowling Mysteries, and that's the last yeah. time I say it like that. Yeah, those four. Those four shows. Uh, Peter T. Myers also worked and has 42 composer credits on here, so I thought I'd give him a little honorable mention. Oh, great, yeah. And then executive produced by Dean Hargrove, Brett Silverman, and Dick Van Dyke. Great. Uh, the main cast, Dr. Mark Sloan, played by Dick Van Dyke. I feel like I don't really need to even talk about him. Um, but it's possible, uh, I don't know, it's possible you missed him if you're young enough. Yeah. You, you'd you most know him from Mary Poppins. 100%. He's the, the cockney chimney sweep from Mary Poppins. I'd know that show you wet anywhere. Mary Poppins. Uh, and then the Dick Van Dyke show, which if you haven't watched any of the Dick Van Dyke show, once this is over... Go find someone wherever they are. I don't know where they are. Just watch some clips of it because it's great. It is. It's well done. He's a delight. He carries the show like Atlas carrying the world. <laughs> 100%. Might as well just be him. Oh, man. He he shines in every scene that we've watched him in. And yeah. Who else? Um, his Steve Sloan is played by Barry Van Dyke, which is Dick's son. He's got 49 actor credits, which include Airwolf and uh, Airwolf. <laughs> a failed sitcom series uh, with his father from a few years prior. Victoria Rawell plays Amanda Bentley Livingston. Uh, she's got 65 actor credits. She appeared in the entirety of our se- series, just like uh, Dick and Barry. And her, her fun little additional uh, acting credit is uh, she appeared in 777 episodes of The Young and the Restless as Great. Drusilla Barbara Winters. Actually, if you look awesome. her up on IMDb, she shows up as uh, Drusilla Winters, Barbara Winters, or Drusilla Barber, and then Drusilla Barbara Winters. Okay. Well, yeah, she probably multiple got times, I'm sure, and it's 770 episodes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Charlie... It's enough time to to die, come back. Yeah, she, who knows if she had, you know, maybe she was in a coma too. Uh, Charlie Schlatter plays Dr. Jesse Travis. He is in 137 episodes. He's got 135 actor credits, including Ferris Bueller on the TV show Ferris Bueller. That's very exciting. I really want to get to that one. And uh, he is the voice of Griff on Sonic the Hedgehog, which is Sat Sonic. Yeah, sad I am. Cool. Uh, Michael Tucci is Norman Briggs. He's our administrator. He's got 42 actor credits. Most notable role is Sonny in Grease. Well, I don't take no crap from nobody. Mm. <laughs> and he does show up in the Gary Shandling show, which is a you know nice little callback cool. to Larry Sanders. Uh, we do get Scott Baio, you know, from Happy Days, uh, plays Dr. Jack yeah. Stewart. He's in 41 total episodes. And, you know, his best known is... From Happy Days. Well, I guess Charlie in Charge, too, because he's the main character in that. Yeah. And his fun fact here, first played a doctor on uh, one episode of Full House. That's great. And then lastly, of our big actors for Diagnosis Murder, um, Nurse Dolores Mitchell is played by Dolores Hall, who doesn't have a lot of actor credits. She's got four in total, which is small roles in Scrooged, 
Lethal hmm. Weapon 3, Leap of Faith, and, you know, Diagnosis Murder. But she is an original member of the L.A. production of Hair, uh, which opened in 1969. She uh, is the opening song singer for Aquarius. And she actually won a Tony Award in 1977 for Best Performance by an actress in a featured role in a musical. And it's for Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. Neato. And then the last little fun bit about this cast is we have eight Van Dykes in total appearing in the series. That's a lot of Van Dykes. Dick Van Dyke, Barry Van Dyke, which is Dick's son. Shane Van Dyke, uh, he shows up in 16 episodes. He's the grandson of Dick and the son of Barry. Carrie, six episodes, grandson, son of Barry. Wes, grandson, son of Barry. Taryn, granddaughter, daughter of Barry. So apparently it's really just the one son. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then Jerry, which is... Dick's younger brother, and Stacy, which is Dick's daughter. And they both only show up in one episode. Great. Filming locations. I can do this. St. Luke's in Denver is the exterior shots for Community General Hospital. Denver, Colorado for the first eight episodes of season one, and then it moved to L.A. for the second half of season one. And you can one. tell that difference, right? We watched that first season episode, yeah. and the office is different comparative to that eight-season episode. Yeah, and I guess in Jake and the Fat Man, it was just like an office building that they wrote hospital on. They hung a hospital. Oh yeah, sign it looks like it. an and office then, building in Jake and the Fat yeah. Man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fun fact that we could say is that in Jake and the Fat Man, you didn't see this part because you tuned in too late. But he says the guy who's selling babies in Jake and the Fat Man, which I just won't explain. The guy selling babies asks him if he has kids, and he says, "Oh no, we tried, but it never worked out." Interesting. So I guess maybe he said, "I need my son with me." How about awards? Awards, Emmys, uh, one primetime Emmy in 1996 for Outstanding Music Composition for a Series, Dick DeBenedictus, episode Mind Over Murder. This was a, nomination. Was a nomination. Correct, yeah. yeah, not a winner. The winner was a Showtime miniseries, Picture Windows. Picture Windows, it was like a short miniseries that like each episode was inspired by like an iconic painting. It sounded cool. And now uh, I think that's all we got background-wise, yeah? We... yeah? And we tried to shorten it up, so hopefully it feels that way. How do we pick the episode? Episoderatings.com. Highest to lowest. I did that backwards. Highest to lowest. Yeah. Highest huh? to lowest. Our first episode is an episode from season one. Season one, episode 18, The Plague. It got an 8.1. Uh, the episode was directed by Peter Ellis. 42 total director credits, uh, which included six episodes of Highlander and two of Sliders. Hell yeah. To throw that in there. <laughs> I love that Highlander series. I'm a, I'm a Duncan stan. Connor, go home. Highland heads will, will get it. It's written by Joyce Burnett and Jerry Conway. Jerry Conway has 60 writer credits, which included all of our mystery series. Great. And all of the newer stuff he's been writing is Marvel and DC superhero stuff. And he wrote Great. Conan the Destroyer. Neato. Uh, which, uh, when I looked it up, because I had to remember more about it, I know it's the second one, but I forgot that Wilt Chamberlain is in this one. Yeah, in uh, Conan the Destroyer. Yeah. Yeah. I got a little confused, and I was looking at the listing for the I'm, the Diagnosis Murder episode, and I said, I don't see Wilt Chamberlain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the way I wrote uh, that. And then I, 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 figured it, I figured it out eventually. <laughs> oh, man. Conan the Destroyer does not hold up as much as Conan the Barbarian. There's something very charming about the deadly seriousness of that kind of sword and sandal, early 80s, late 70s fantasy stuff. 
all tied together with terrible acting. You want to read the synopsis or I can take it? Uh, you do that one. I'll do the second one since I technically right. still have to write the second one. Steve stakes out a hitman and has his father, Dr. Sloan, check his health. When the two see him collapse through a telescope, they find out the hitman has the plague. With the doctors on the case, the team finds out there's a strong mob connection and that one of three mob ladies is responsible for the attack on the hitman's life. Honorable mention to the attention-seeking state virologist. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward episode. We don't really need to... We'll, we'll get into our bits, but essentially it's just... They see, they see this hitman through the telescope, see him collapse, they go run over, find out he has plague. We meet the suspects, and then in the end, one of them turns out to actually And the best it. part about this episode is we find out that doctors have the ability to question people about crimes. Oh yeah, they're, they're not at all causing any problems with uh, evidentiary witness tampering. Showing up to people's houses, workplaces, it's wild. Yeah, they just let him, they let him go nuts. Uh, so first of the first thing we noticed, both of us together loved the soundtrack. Now you hated it. I love the bits and pieces we use it, but I mean, it, they have the whole orchestra thing, right? So they barely use any music half the time. But it sounds very, it's very quaint. It is. And it fits with the theme, because that theme music is quaint at the beginning. And it feels like, uh, the kind of show that you would watch at Grandma's house. It does. With all that, with all the little doodling woodwinds and whatnot. I do find that this episode opens weirdly because it's that whole, we're in the lab, the whole science background and all that stuff. They're doing all kinds of things, um, which technically plays in later, but is a weird cut through um, because it makes literally no sense until like the middle of the show. It literally takes 20 minutes till we understand the beginning of the show. Yeah, that's true. It's uh, It is very strange. <laughs> Our next episode was way more conventional in that, but... But this one at least uh, did make us guess till the end. It did, yes. Which I appreciate. It's always kind of, yeah, there's a couple different ways you could do a mystery show, right? There's, you could let the audience know everything that happened, and then it's you seeing how the detective figures out. All of Columbo. Yeah, that's Columbo. Oh, you always know who did it immediately because you see the murder happen. Yep. And then you got to figure out how they got there. Or you can uh, give us all the hints and then call everyone into the room, like, uh, Mustache Man, a Hercule Poirot, or Knives Out style, right? where you, they keep you guessing throughout, and there's red herrings, and then in the end, you sit down and you go through go through it all. Or it starts as a mystery, and then halfway through, we find out who it is, like, uh, you know, in Murder, She Wrote, or sort of this. Because that's the one thing that I, I never really liked it when they do it that way. It's like the last few minutes, and that's when we find out. I always like when the investigator figures it out. It might be why I do like Poirot. When I like Columbo too, because it's usually about he's seeing through it and throwing him off, and then it's the psychological game between the two of them is part is kind of the point. Uh, oftentimes they're kind of dueling. Yeah, it is each other, like a duel. and then he's and he's doing his his ho- his folksy. He can play dumb. I always love it when Columbo plays dumb. There's just one thing I don't understand. Oh, listen, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about. <laughs> I have in my next set of notes here is just because it's a callback and it happens multiple times, the yes payphone because we get so much old technology in the show. It's great. Oh, yeah. It really does fit into the error. I mean, Jake and the Fat Man had a beeper plot line. Yeah, the in the Jake and the Fat Man episode, that's the pilot for this. It all comes down to beepers. Right. It's beeper a beeper centric mystery. So then we cut into like the opening scene of i forget what is it the the two doctors the woman and scott bayo um talking to each other whatever it is 
Yeah, I don't remember exactly what happened. I just have written weird Scott Bayo apple. Yeah, that's exactly what I have. I have apple bite, and it says, but why I is he remember... eating an apple like that? Yeah, he was eating his apple very strangely. Okay, good. I'm glad you had more information and memory of it because I said, what What does this mean? It was like a weird dramatization of eating the apple where he was like, yes, he was eating it, but it was almost like, I feel like if they did a cut, he would spit the apple out. Oh, perhaps, yeah. He wasn't chewing the apple. Right, and it was, it was just sitting, but he would take like a bite on like an angle, so he would only he take just... a small bite. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and then, <laughs> so he didn't have to act with half an apple in his mouth. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, he's not really acting very well. So no, he's, uh, um... uh, yeah, Scott Bio is pretty weak in this. The doctor they replace him with, I do prefer. He's the one I am more familiar with in the show because I watch later seasons. Right, the young, shorter doctor. He, they almost replace him with the typecast of the yeah, same Yeah, well, I think it's, they don't have the same name, but they have very similar names. It's Dr. Jack Stewart, and then it's... Dr. Jesse Travis. Right, yeah, that's So it. they both, and I, and I think they both go by their first name, like it's Dr. Jack, and it's Dr. Jesse. I think there was a Dr. Jack in, like, not Scott Bio. There was a Dr. Jack in possibly the pilot, but definitely the first three movies. There was different Dr. Jacks before it ended up being Scott Bio for the series. Okay, yeah. Which is, this is a good transition, because my next note is, um, we're talking about his acting um, with the woman, and then yeah. Dick Van Dyke comes into the scene. And my only mention here is just the complete sheer acting difference between Dick and the rest of the ensemble is a bit overwhelming at times. Yeah, he just brings it constantly. I mean, He's always doing something. Some of it's weird. Sometimes, but it's the Dick Van Dyke weird where he's like yeah. making those facial expressions that you expect him to do. Well, in the next episode, he he like tears open a, a packet of crisps and and goes patooey. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's just so charming. But everyone and everyone else is just sitting there delivering their lines accurately. But he's over there being a strange child man, right? And then after this scene, we go to the the stakeout, essentially, with his son, um, who can never solve his mysteries without his father. I'm surprised he still has a job. He's usually not a very good cop. So they're they're staking out the hitman uh, through a telescope, waiting for him to like make contact with someone. I don't know exactly. I don't remember exactly what they're doing, but it's cop stuff. They they think he's going to do something. It's the so mob angle. Him. They're waiting for him to like meet back up with the mob or something, yes. I think. Yeah. And then he gets a delivery from housekeeping and it includes a syringe of some medicine which he injects himself with and then he collapses so they all run over dick van dyke doing some excellent medical babble yeah he does a really he's, good job uh he doesn't stumble over any of these words and he does a bunch of good medical babble throughout this where i'm like this guy practices this is incredible oh, and during that it's when they walk away from the telescope right the medical babble where they have the really weird cuts yes where they're like technically standing next to each other but the camera keeps cutting <laughs> yeah. to like space between them it's yeah. it's yeah, like it's cutting back and forth between them but then it pulls back and they're standing next to each other like almost ready to put their arms around each other it's an uncomfortable yeah. amount of camera work it's, that they're it's, putting into that it's the kind of thing that like it's fine but once you notice it it is very strange cuz i didn't notice it on the first watch until we went back and you pointed it out and i'll say that the hitman bruno crespi is played by michael russo who is a, a very legit working stuntman, 173 credits, worked on Spider-Man, Independence Day, <laughs> The Happening, tons of things. <laughs> and uh, he's also in The Toxic Crusader as an actor. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, a fun guy, uh, not really used much in this episode, but an interesting guy to read about. Before we end the scene in the hotel room where they, you know, quarantine the hospital and everything because he figures out it's plague. Right. Um, he looks over to the bed and it's made and he... Is like, what was there a maid in the room already? Yeah, why is housekeep? Why did housekeeping come if the bed's already made? 
Um, nice little foreshadowing for that. They go to the hospital and it's under lockdown because of a plague case where we don't want a pandemic, the guy says. And then Michael Tucci's character runs in and he's panicking and he says, do we need to put masks on? Just being very nervous. Uh, Michael Tucci's character gets a little old immediately <laughs> for me. Oh, yeah. It's um, a little too much. And we picked the best episode for that, I think, because they actually talk trash on them the whole time yeah because there's the b plot that we haven't talked about where they're setting up the old people uh party uh they're doing some sort of party where dick van dyke plays the piano for the old people at the hospital and they they're talking about it and they're like uh let's not invite norman because last time he started reciting the rhyme of the ancient mariner oh yeah that's right so they're trying to hide they're trying to hide the old people piano party from him while they're while he's panicking about getting plague but I just have in my note, Norman Briggs is too much. Yeah. <laughs> because there's like three different scenes where he's just sitting down and uh, stressing everyone out. He's doing a great job at this role. I just don't like it. Yeah, the acting is good. He does definitely does a good job. I, I think he's doing a fine job. I just, I just don't care for it. No. And then we get our uh, secondary antagonist of this episode, the uh, government virologist who uh, doesn't want... Anyone else talking about the plague, he's the one who's messaging. He's making the decisions here. Very imperious. At one point, they there's a shot in a pharmacy, and it's got these enormous potion bottles. Yes. And that's I think he's finding out what, what the guy was given. And so the hitman was given epinephrine, probably for an allergy or something like that. It's one of the few drugs that they give you to inject Asthma. yourself with. Asthma. Yes, thank you. Yes. And so he says it must have been switched with something. Must have been switched with plague somewhere around there. And then they just start doing investigations. He goes and talks to the three main suspects, which is... Uh, he goes and talks to, I believe, Bruno's ex-wife, his ex-mother-in-law, and Bruno's sister. And they all have uh, convincing reasons that they're not uh, involved, but it establishes a good motive for each of them. Yes. I mean, it's not good at all. No. And the, the one... So the one where he pulls up in the car... I forget which one it was, but it's the one. That's the daughter. The... It's when he's he visits the daughter and the mother. I think around the same time, but that's when he looks at the daughter's butt. To was there two daughters? Or it's not. Sorry, it's not the daughter. It's the it's his ex. Right. The who is who is the daughter of the older lady? That's it. Yes, and yeah, she he they do this like weird scene. The boyfriend comes in, wants to fight him or whatever it is. Doctor Sloan pulls up in this like nineteen forties teardrop esque um, car. That just looks completely out of place. Apparently, I did what I did find out is that he drives a Saab 900 later in the series. Oh, wonderful. But I don't know what that car was. It's not a purple spider, so don't care. It's not a purple spider. <laughs> uh, but it's a very awkward scene because the girl and the guy are miserably bad at acting. Oh, yeah, they're <laughs> pretty rough. Um, actually, all of them are bad at acting except for the daughter. The daughter does an okay job. Yeah, that's the. I think that's his sister, right? The put-upon yeah, sister. Like, like, she's like, we never saw anything come out of there. What's that, an ex-wife? I don't remember. It's not important. Yeah, the, it's not really important for these. There's a, there's the, the ex-wife yeah, the the, and two young girls. The reason this whole, the, the reason he left and came back is because he was implicated in the killing of a mob boss. Yes. Who, the older mob lady was the, was married to that mob boss, so she got all his money. And so the implication is that she worked with Crespi to kill him and then now that he's back she wants to get him out of the picture right but then there's and also the ex that is also mad about him leaving 
and is kind of an idiot and has a angry boyfriend. So maybe she's just out of spite doing it. And then the sister, I don't remember her, her motive, but I don't either. That's the pet store yeah. girl. And it's not really that important. The, the most important part of this is literally it's either Dick Van Dyke, Dr. Sloan, or one of the other doctors who goes and investigates. Yeah. These so they go Scott bio and Dr. Bentley. Go. That's the most interesting one. They go to the docks, go to the docks. and Scott yeah. Bio's like, the docks are dangerous. It's the docks, Amanda. Yeah. <laughs> you can't go down there by yourself. There's a lot of OSHA regulations not being followed. These yeah, docks, they almost get crushed that. by a box when they're hiding on top of a truck. It's very... Uh, right. Those Teamsters, they got, they got to attend their continuing education, I think, a little closer. But that's so that's the most interesting portion of it. And they find out that they there's a meeting later that they'll go yeah. to. But before we get to that meeting, I wanted to talk about the virologist. Sure. Because he is just absurd the way he's playing him. It's James Stevens plays this character, and he's just over the top. I'll say one of the main characters of the Father Dowling Mysteries. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, he plays this, he's just, he wants the media attention. Yeah. He's a state virologist, and he's just playing it and trying to ham it up and Dr. Sloan doesn't like him, and that's our B-plot. They just kind of go at each other, and it's um, really kind of In the end, it turns out, because it's uh, someone being infected by plague intentionally, it's not a, there's no reason for the government to get involved. So yeah, that's how that wraps up. So uh, we go to the meeting. We don't have to talk about it anymore. Yeah, yeah the meeting. I love the meeting. The meeting is good. because uh, So they go and they watch the meeting, right? And no, there's no there's nobody there when they get there. Right. Yes. Okay, yes. So they go. So they go inside, and... Uh, I have my yum yum cocaine note because yep. because Vic Van Dyke is just like he just like rips up in the package and he just tastes it and he's like that's cocaine. You said Spengler was an importer. That's cocaine. This is where they find out that it's plague as well. Yeah, they um, find they the, they find the, the uh, tainted vials and the wrong antibiotic. Yes, which is how they'll figure out who did it in the end. And then someone comes up outside and they're like, uh oh, we gotta we gotta pretend to do the meeting. And they go in there and they start saying like, "Yeah, the cocaine's great." And they start playing it up because they think it's a mob guy, and it's it's pretty funny. It is. It's funny. a pretty funny uh, scene. The DE agent, um, which is Andres. Andres Katsoulis. Katsoulis. Jakar yep. from uh, Babylon Five. He's doing a good job, and he's he's being very intimidating. And they're they're worried that they're that they have a crime man, so they're trying to like talk it up and complete the purchase. And then he says, "Well, I'm a police officer. I'm from the DAA, so we're gonna take you." Uh, or you're under arrest. Yep. And and then they play the bit where the son shows up uh-huh. and says, "I don't know. I don't know these people at all. I've never seen these two guys before in my life." And, and then funny. they laugh. Yeah. Barry's delivery is is so stale and yeah. And then they set up the sting with Bruno Crespi, assuming that someone's going to want to finish the job. Yes. And uh, they give us a red herring with the. I think the sister comes in. You think she's the one that's there, but she's just there because she's mad and she just wants to yell at him. Yep. And then uh, you see the the older mob lady stalking in in a disguise, and she tears open the curtain, and it's Dick Van Dyke there. Regina Baylor. Doctor Sloan, where's Bruno? Somewhere safe. And he says, she, "Aha!" She pulls out a gun. Uh huh. And we have a very weird struggle between. Dick and Barry and this woman, and then in the end, he's like, "You're going to die with plague if you don't let me treat you." And because she took the, she stole. He knows it was her because she stole the antibiotic, and she got sick too. Yeah, it's the wrong antibiotic. It would never work. Yeah, 
And then that's it. That's, that's it. how we catch our, our person, which we find out this one is better than the next one because we find out almost at the very, very end here. You kind of already know because of the way it played out. They're not very good at hiding anything the way the writing's done, but yeah. at least we find out at the end. Yeah, it, it it's a mystery in the end, although it's kind of just like, oh, it could be any of them. <laughs> you know, like there's no mm-hmm. clue uh, really, but it's satisfying. It's it's a mystery. It happens, and I'm not unhappy with and then they go to the little old people event that they have. Yeah, the old people party. And then Dick sings this out, which we will put in here. We Oh, absolutely. Uh, we, we may close the podcast with it, to be honest with you. But it's Dick Van Dyke and um, Dolores Hall. So we've got two like theater people. And then uh, Michael Tucci also joins in to sing this song. And I've got a, a note here that I think, it, I think this is something Dick Van Dyke says after he's like, I can cure your plague but we can't cure your guilty heart (laughs) oh well that's a better one-liner than happens in the next episode we're gonna watch so this is season one episode 18 it's fine it is fine this is our top rated episode i mean if there were plenty more of these this is you know something fun to watch on a thursday night to enjoy with your family yeah no nothing terrible really Although the, the difference in the ratings between the two episodes, I think, is a little bit larger than it should be. I don't know about that. Okay. Well, we'll talk about this. What's the next episode? Tell me about it. Uh, so, season eight, episode 16, being of sound mind. It got a 5.2 on episode ratings. It was directed by Christopher Hilber. Uh, he's got 23 total director credits, which included some episodes of Beverly Hills 90210, Matlock. And the rest of the mystery series. He did direct Father Dowling Mystery, the the TV movie, uh, Fatal ah, Confession. Very cool. Um, and then written by Joyce Burnett and Bert Proluski. Proluski's mm-hmm. uh, got 26 writer credits, including MASH, where he had seven written by and one story by. So that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Uh, Dragnet, the one from 1967, and uh, Diagnosis Murder Without Warning, that one of the made for tv movie oh cool i'll wing this synopsis because i didn't do the full write-up which i apologize for so in this episode we learned about a tauntaun tauntine oh i know it's spelled wrong okay (laughs) but i spelled it that way so i knew how to pronounce it correctly (laughs) tauntine and ned is going to explain to you what a tauntine is real quick but very briefly a tauntine is the place you might have seen it there's an episode of the simpsons where Grandpa Simpson and some of the other people who fought in the war, the rest of them have died off. And so he gets like the notice that there's just one in him and another guy left. And he's, and then they get into this caper because there's all the stolen Nazi art. Whoever's the last one left gets to take it all. Well, Simpson, seven gone. As soon as you're in your press board coffin, I'll be the sole survivor and the treasure will be mine. Over my dead body, it will. That's exactly the point. And so he's worried about the other old guy killing him. It's essentially an insurance scheme. And that's and that's a tontine. It's a reverse insurance. You get paid as long as you're alive. Mm-hmm. And you pay an amount in, and you sign the contract, and then you get paid until you are dead. And it's a hedge against growing old too fast. Or, or a hedge against growing too old and using up your money too quickly. Because you are going to get more money as you get older. Because as people die in the tontine scheme... The money that is coming out, the payouts will be split among fewer and fewer and fewer people. Correct. So uh, in the end, and then this one is a uh, very 
intense version of it where there's an amount and only the last one left gets it. Right. Which and is, this, this is built off of this is closer to weird... uh, Grandpa Simpson's Tontine. Correct. Yeah. And it, it's basically we, we get the gentleman who comes in and I have it in my notes as weird guy dies in OR and leaves all of his assets to strangers. Yeah. He basically just picked six people as he was going to the operating room. Um, but in the end, the as the lawyer tells us, six of you are here, but only one of you can inherit. And somebody asks what uh, what will happen to the rest of us, and he says, you will die. Yeah. <laughs> and that is a, exactly the plot. People just slowly die that are part of this tauntine. So the guy, they wheel the guy in, and he, he says, what's your name? And each name that of the doctor and nurse that's there, the lawyer's there writing it down. And then they all get put in the tauntine. And, it, and he it. says, everyone has to die for you to uh, inherit the fortune, uh, undetermined fortune. And we'll just go into it right there because that's literally how it starts. Yeah. It's the old man going to the OR talking to his lawyer. And his lawyer is played by... Um, Joe O'Connor, I think. That's it, it, yeah. Uh, is that, did I say that uh, right? Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, Clarissa's dad from Clarissa Explains It All. It is. Um, we go in, so we do that. And they start the B-plot pretty early as well in this episode, which, you know, when they do that, it usually is some sort of foreshadowing. Yeah. And it's Dr. Sloan needs a secretary. Yeah, I like that first that first secretary is actually pretty fun. The interview where it's this guy with strange Coke bottle glasses and he says, Now listen, you know, I don't I'll work very cheap, uh, because I'm really just here to find out when the celebrities get in here for nose jobs and whatnot. And uh and he says, Get out and he says, No, 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 fifty fifty. I'll share whatever That's, I uh, get with you. Yeah, that character, uh Fred Stoller, I yes. believe. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. How you doing? All right. I'm working the crowd. He's got that like weird whiny voice where he does like the sort of deadpan type comedy. Yeah. And that I yeah. and that that's reasonably funny for for this. Oh, yes. So he's having trouble with his secretary search, Dr. Sloan is. And he's complaining about it to his son when some random person uh reads the posting on the the corkboard outside. Right. Uh, as you do with job postings in in the year 2001. And comes in and says, essentially, I graduated college and that's all I got. And gives him a massage. This girl is yeah. massaging her boss way too much. Way too much. And But the build-in for that first is um, she comes in, uh, Barry's in there with her with his father, and there's some sort of like Czechoslovakia joke that they start. Oh, yeah, it says uh, you would have gotten the job as long as you weren't planning to invade Czechoslovakia. Right. And she says... Um, Oh, man, I forget what she says. But she doesn't respond to him at all. Dr. Sloan is rubbing his neck, mm. and she says, oh, is it your neck? And uh, Barry says, uh, it's no, a it's country. country. <laughs> yeah, and it's a bad delivery. Yeah. Gee, the competition must have been really awful. Actually, all you really had to do was promise not to invade Czechoslovakia. <laughs> is it your neck? It's a country. What? And I, and I believe he's making a Hitler joke there, because... It's been nine years as of this episode, that episode having been made, the Czech Republic and Slovakia have been two separate countries for almost oh, yeah, a decade okay. at that point. So <laughs> uh, so I, I can only assume that he's making a Hitler reference there. So, oh, What a weird Yeah, thing. even stranger. But uh, yeah, she then she goes to massage him and like people walk in the door and kind of like eyeball him and leave. Yeah. Uh, like what is happening right now? While she's massaging, we get the explosion, right? Yeah, and before that, I have a note that his, his man, his office, really took a downgrade somewhere along the way. Uh, oh, yeah. It was real nice in that season one episode we watched, and it was incredibly nice in Jake and the Fat Man. He he walked through, like, a he had, like, a suite, an yeah. office suite with, like, a, all these 
the sitting chair. He had a big globe. It looked like he lived there in Jake and the Fat Man. I think he even... He had nicer, even nicer chairs. Like in this episode, the chair just looks like they put him in like the corner. Very dumb. I'm not even sure he has a window. Well, he's not really doing any doctoring anymore, right? He's just, uh, he just, he retired and hangs out there now. That's my, that's my read <laughs> of the situation. That's where he helps his son keep his job. Right. He's just a mystery solving um, but... retired doctor who gets an honorary office. Yeah, that's it. And filled with just trinkets. Filled with junk that he refuses to get rid of. That's the B plot yeah. is him just going through everything and saying, like, no, no, I can't get rid of that. Yeah, oh, are you, are you crazy? They do refer to his office as a rat's nest yeah. at some point. But, yeah, so Secretary found. He hires the girl because of the back rub, and then there's an explosion, which we find out is in the biochem lab, and our first Tontine member dies here. Yeah, it's just one of the it's one of the other doctors or nurses. I don't remember. I don't remember who the sixth one was. I wasn't paying for it. Oh, uh, he was the medical thing. student that worked ah, in the lab. Ah, good. Yes, okay. Yeah. Um, which we don't know how he dies. It just he just dies. Yeah, he got, right? a, he got the explosion. Up. And then we get uh, Doctor Jesse Travis has asked out Nurse Sally. That's right. They're, yes. they're both in the Tontine, and he says, "I didn't really know her, and now we got talking, so I've got a date with her tonight." And he we says, "Find out she's a ex biker criminal." Oh yeah, I'm, I think this whole thing's funny, but <laughs> but he's, he says, "You know, uh, I'm going to take her to the." You know, Bob's barbecue or whatever and they say isn't it close today he said yeah I'll cook for him there and I don't know if it's his, his dad's or something it's, it's probably something that's established in the show but I like to think that this doctor just broke into the barbecue joint uh, to impress his date and yeah, began, and began out, cooking spaghetti or whatever <laughs> the date goes terribly because obviously this is a fallen woman that no one should love but was the date really going terribly? Because I think he was going to get some. Oh no! She, I mean, Is she that was the point of a date. She was she was having a great time and she was into him. Yeah, yeah. But it's we as the audience are supposed to know that this is a bad woman who good doctors should not be interested in because she's talking about her biker past and then about uh, getting arrested once. And which uh, I'm confident in this show that Dr. Jesse Travis has been arrested more than once for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, doing his <laughs> things like he is really not one to be throwing stones. Any of these mystery guys, they've been uh, taken out. Of, they've been taken out of the station 50 times and rescued by their connections. So they need to yeah, not there's an be episode where Dr. Sloan ends up on death row. If I remember. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, but, um, and then she says, uh, she starts opening up her collar and saying, like, Oh, you want to see my tattoos? And he's, and he, he looks like he's going to barf. He's like, Oh God. Oh no. Does. And says, Oh, a woman with tattoos. Disgusting. And it's they, just so they, funny how times have he changed. He plays it so awkwardly. Yeah. And then he gets up to like pack stuff up cause he's uncomfortable. Yeah. She's drinking her wine. And she dies. And well, and she dies. They gave her no dignity for that. Yeah. She just falls over. She falls out of the chair face flat. And uh, having a stroke, apparently. It turns out there was a de- antidepressant in the wine. Yep. And you, if you mix those two together, it's a deadly reaction. Yeah. We haven't talked about our probably the most fun part of the episode, Dr. Philip Zachary. Uh, played by Mark Harley. Yes, who is uh, just really getting into this murder suicide pact that he's been forced into. He's just, yeah, like, he's... he's running odds. He's like, I, I think he's gets one of the other doctors he's like i've put you you're like second on the list i think the younger doctor has it over you it's like the youngest kid is most likely to get it and then and then it's either you or the younger doctor but i think you're hungrier uh so i think you're gonna get it and then it's me he's, and then it's the old guy and then it's then it's the nurse he's got a very dark sense of humor yeah. for that he's just having a great, great. time and then he's like uh, my coffee smells like cyanide today and then he drinks it and goes bleh, bleh. is that possibly the faint aroma of burnt almond Oh, what the heck? You only live once. 
cheated death again. And he's just being like a real piece of shit about the, the, the fact that people are actually being murdered. He's just having such a good time. Uh, and in all of this, we've already cut to our secretary giving Dr. Sloan a back rub, yeah. I think twice. Yeah, it's just, it keeps happening. It's weird. And uh, she says when she got hired, she says she doesn't know computers. Yeah, and then we'll we find see out about that. Dr. Philip Zachary is working out, and he just gets his head smashed by a barbell. He's the third person in the tontine to die. Yeah. And then we're left with uh, sad husband Leonard Drexel, whose wife has uh, gone blind, and the insurance won't pay for the, the eye surgery that she needs. And so he's sitting at the table with the two other doctors that are in the tontine, and he says, like, if it cost your lives for my wife to get better, I would trade that. And then he walks away. So at this point, I mean, after Dr. Zachary is smacked in the face and killed, I feel like the way the writing goes that I pointed it out that it's the secretary, it was very, very obvious at that point. And it kind of, that's what I don't like about some of these is you just find out at these points because of either poor writing or the way that they decide to introduce it. Yeah. And this is the part where all of a sudden then you see after hours secretary get on the computer and start change and start changing prescriptions right or whatever and so she's changed the prescription for leonard's wife so she has some sort of attack and then i don't understand why she needed to do that she could have just stabbed him either way she comes in and stabs him and so we see we well, see her the nurse was still out there right ah, there was yes. a police officer and a nurse so the officer went to get the nurse after she did that so she could come in and we literally watched this woman come in and stab yeah. this man in the back so we know who's all responsible the other ones now. it was like a little less but like holy crap <laughs> But it was a dark scene but, because they were having a really intimate moment. Oh yeah, that that whole story is so sad. And then uh, Doctor Sloan comes in and he says, "Here's the will your husband just prepared." Like as soon as he found out he was in this death pact, and then here's a letter that he wrote: "Take my corneas and yep. use this payout money for the insurance payment, and then just go have a good life." And this is very touching, sad thing in this otherwise like farcical mystery drama. But yeah, it's it's like a really dark and sad kind of like plot line through this. And the way they end it is just shockingly. Yeah. And it's at this point that. Uh, they fake the the accident. Barry says Barry says, oh, we 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 need to find out who his next of kin is uh, because you can't possibly just renounce a, a, an inheritance without knowing who it goes to next. Oh, right. So they do the whole thing with the next of kin. But we do have to mention that Dr. Sloan figured that out in a few scenes previous. Because then he has his son come in because they're doing the whole conversation uh -huh. in front of the secretary. So Sloan clearly knows. And then they do that fake car accident and stuff like that. Well, then he's he. So his son says, we do most of that searching on the Internet now. And then, yeah, yeah. And then you see Dr. Sloan sit down at the computer and he doesn't say it. But essentially, it's just like the Internet, huh? And then he just searches family tree, and then he finds their family tree, and he's talking about it in the strangest way. Oh, right. He does the song. I have the order of everything yeah. backwards. That's where You're he's, right. That's where he's, right. That's where he's singing about begatting. Sharon did no begatting, but Jacob and Dora begat Susan and Clayton. Clayton and Ruth did their begatting with Oscar. And after little Oscar, they begat no more. And then and Susan, she begat her daughter Clara, and Clara married Frank, and they begat Priscilla. And and having a real good time, and it's it's funny. I think it's the best scene in the in the episode, but it's very strange. It is, yeah. Especially a man just died, yeah, by being stabbed in the back. And so that's when now that she's in there, he sits her down and says, uh, 
I found his next of kin. It turns out she graduated from Oregon State the same time as you. Maybe you know her. Yeah. And then she says, oh, you got me. And has her excuse for why she didn't use her real name, Priscilla Blumpler or whatever. Yeah, it's a weird name. It's, it's a bad name. It's a name that I would definitely consider changing if it was mine. And she says, I never knew him. And so it's like he wasn't leaving me. He'd rather leave my money to six people so they kill each other instead of to me. So it's like I have no family. And he's like, okay. And then they say, and oh, no, Dr. Dr. Travis has been in a terrible car accident. Right, yeah. And that buildup is really weird because then they do a scene where he like can't stay into the coma. He keeps like cracking jokes or whatever yeah, he, it is. He's a terrible actor. He's oh my god. He, uh, they're like, oh no, if he passes, who will get his new stereo? And he says, you'll never get my stereo. <laughs> yeah. And then they 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 have him monitored, but they're like not near him. They're all doing their own thing, and they hear it over the like the the camera or whatever. Oh my god, a, mo- a lot man's life is in danger or whatever. Mm-hmm. They all freak out. They're like rushing, but they get on the fucking elevator. Well, because they got to go up to save Dr. Bentley. Because she's the one... She and Dr. Travis are the only two left. Uh, yes. And so they've got Dr. Travis thinking that she'll try and finish him off in the coma. Uh, but instead she goes for the other doctor. Which, why are you guys standing alone? All right, you're fifth on a list of six people, four of which are already dead. Uh, yes. You, you should really not be alone. Can we can we talk about the bad one liner before she goes to try to kill? Yeah, that's her? great. Um, if the, she's in her locker. She grabs what a tie. Yeah, and she says, "I spy with my little eye." eye. And then she pulls it very tightly. <laughs> and so then they all run upstairs. No, they elevator upstairs. Well, they run to the elevator. So they get up there and just tackle her offer and say, "All right, you're under arrest." And then, uh. The resolution is it turns out that the fortune was like $78. That's all that was left. Yep. It was like literally nothing. So it's it was all for nothing. What a what a tragedy. But instead they just played off like jokes and uh For real. She asks, they literally played off. She jokes. asks, yeah, four people are dead and uh and they're just laughing about it. And then Dr. Travis says, you know, after of course, after I, you know, donated a new wing to the hospital and uh did all the charity, she's like, Well then what would you spend it on? And he's like, Big house, big yachts, and big women. Yep. And then that's, I think, the end of our episode. I mean, it's essentially, they do it. They talk about how, you know, whatever's left, how how much will be left after compounding. That's the additional joke they make. He says, you'll outlive me. Because uh, the tontine's still in effect. And so right. the interest will compound until one of them dies, and then the other one will get possibly $100. Um, the episode does end on a slightly more somber mm. note, though, because they do the yes. um, the woman he talks who got to the her woman. husband's eyes. Yeah. Mrs. Drexel, um, he talks to her. They do the whole eye. She gets her corneas. And uh, they do have that little scene where she's, they take the bandage off and she says, you have very pretty eyes, doctor. And then he just smiles for about 25 seconds. And then he says, so do you. <laughs> and that's where our episode ends. So uh, I just have a quick note on the the structure of the Tontine, like narratively here, is that, uh, of course, some of the people in the Tontine are going to be extras because you're going to be killing them, right? That's where right. the drama comes in. But you can't put two of your main characters in the Tontine and then really quickly kill off most of the other people in the Tontine because you're like, I know you're not brave enough to make Dr. Chessie Travis after six seasons murder <laughs> one of your other narr- like main cast characters. That'd be very brave of you, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to. And so like, Especially not mid-90s. So by the time we get to like the last f- three or four, you're like, well... It's not going to be any of these because there's the obvious guy 
there's the sympathetic guy and there's your two main cast characters. Yeah. They really wrote themselves into a corner with that where we were just like, okay, who, what seventh person is doing this? I think they do that a lot in this show though. Yeah. Well, you've got to put your characters in danger, in minor danger, but if you, if the danger is that they are going to murder one of the other ones, then we don't feel that danger very strongly. But, no, not at all. And then the other thing is, I looked it up, and all you you can you can renounce any inheritance. You can just say I don't want it, and then you are effectively out of the will as far as. Oh, I thought that immediately yeah. when they said, "Oh no, the Tontine is infected." I was like, "No, that that's yeah, not you, how that you can't works. lock you can... someone into a death a death match." Uh, no, you can't through your will. <laughs> oh my! It's which funny. It's I mean, I'm not I don't I don't, I don't like to nitpick and things like that, but it is funny when it's just like it could have been like, he's like, "No thanks." You can't say no thanks to this. And then uh, the same thing with the first episode, as it turns out that there's like seven cases of plague a year in the American West because the ground squirrels all carry it. Uh, so it's a, a very regular thing that would not require a government, a government virologist pandemic man to come in and shut everything down because. No, it has to like jump to whatever that the airborne thing well, be, it, for it to be like yeah. workable. Yeah, it's not. It's an endemic disease in California, which is where they were. So. But it's like, it, sure, whatever. It's a, it could have been Ebola or something. It could have been something more. But the, but the plague sounds fun. I don't know. Yeah, it does. It sounds deadlier. But it's the episode's fine without that. It's just funny that, you know, I was I was seeing signs when I was in, speaking of, to connect both episodes in Yosemite. I had a ground squirrel steal my Cheez-Its, and I was like, I'm going to throw those <laughs> out because he got into my Cheez-Its because I know that they carry plague because of all the signs around the campsite. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I uh, I do love cheese. It's but um, for <laughs> I will draw the line at the plague. I so we talk about it. It was a five point three, and I think it's more of general pacing and the way the story is written that makes this episode worse than the previous episode. Yeah, and, and the fact that Dick Van Dyke is not our main character hurts it as well. Yeah, I mean it. It's not carried well. Yeah. It, so yeah, you're probably right. The we don't see as much of uh, Dick at all. And I just feel like the flow, the editing, everything is just poorer here. It, it's an eighth season. Clearly, they kind of are like, uh, we're coming to an end, is how I feel this episode was portrayed. Yeah. The first season episode we watched, he was investigating. He was figuring things out. He was doing stuff. They were all doing stuff. And in this one, they're kind of just like letting it happen until yes. finally they take action now that one of their lives is actually at risk. That is exactly what it was. They let three people die before yeah. they the, they did anything. Yeah, so it really, uh, honestly, uh, you dropped the ball, Dr. Sloan. Ugh. You really should have been able to protect any of the extras. All right, well, we, do we want to rate them? Yeah, I think that's all I got. So uh, this is rating the show, right? We are rating the show, yes. All right, let me pull up the sheet so that I can see what I have rated in the past. Out of 15. Out of 15, the 90 TV pod. All right, I'm ready to go. All right, what do you got? Uh, This is a six for me. Damn, you put it a lot lower than I thought. Yeah. I'm going more off of that. Now you're making me sick. Well, what, I, what, I do, what I do, 7th Heaven. A 7.5. Okay. I think it's better. Oh, than, I did a 7.5. I'm going to do a 7.5 because I would rather watch this than 7th Heaven. I am going to actually adjust from what I did have in there. I'm going to put it at an 8.5. Yeah, but for me, I think clearly this is worse than Nightman. This is better than <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's our fundamental divide. 
I was going to say, that's the thing we're going to measure all shows off yeah. of, is how we voted on Nightman. All right, Nightman is... Uh, yeah, I'll make it an 8.5, because right. I think it's better than Seventh Heaven, um, based off of that first season, but I think because Seventh Heaven, when we watched that second musical episode, made me never want to watch that series ever again. Yeah. And I think, like, so you gave Saved by the Bell an 8.5, and it's similar. I'd be perfectly happy watching this. If, if I just had to pick something to be on, this is... I'm happy with it. Yeah. I'm not going to choose it, but I'm happy with it. Right. If it's there, you'll just leave yeah. it go. And be, yeah. Yeah. And then we do our nastier than Wolf Bronski. Uh, ain't nothing nastier than Wolf Bronski. I believe it. Absolutely not. Yeah. No. <laughs> There's nothing nasty about this television yep. show. It's uh, pretty wholesome, minus the weird dark humor that they throw at you sometimes yeah sometimes the implications are much less wholesome than the tone itself but which i think plays pretty well to the older audience because i mean i guess the longer you go through life right the more prepared you are for the inevitable yeah and uh the better those jokes play yeah maybe uh so where is it streaming it's on pluto tv and philo tv which philo tv is the one that you've probably seen ads for if you're watching any sort of ad supported streaming and it's structured like real TV. You'd pick a channel and watch it on there. So when I went to look for Diagnosis Murder, uh, they told me tomorrow you can watch season four, episode 15 at noon. <laughs> and I said, that's unhelpful. <laughs> and Pluto TV only had a few seasons, but that's also the terrible streaming service where you can't save where you are. You can't go back. Yeah. Um, they play ads continuously. It's a, it's a weird... Owned by Paramount, but just a weird. Yeah, no service. control. It's a it's a bad free service. It's no Tubi, that's for sure. Yeah, n- not at all. New feelings. Uh, I thought I liked this more than I do. <laughs> I I, I <laughs> had a lot more fondness for this before I rewatched parts of it. This feels exactly how I thought it would. It is a show that you know you see on your grandmother's television. I think I've also seen more mystery TV shows and media that is better because I think when I was. Yeah, 10 or 11 watching this with my parents i hadn't watched a lot of murder she wrote or mm. matlock or which are definitely Columbo or perry mason or all these like uh you know I've, I've seen so many things that i'm like this is not as good as any of those ones that are better and yeah. you could spend forever watching probably better mysteries Dick Van Dyke is fantastic. Yes, he carries the show 100% by himself. Uh, I love watching him. Every time he's on screen, he's doing something. Uh, And yeah, that voice, great guy. Um, Toys. The only toys they have, I'm going to call these toys because books are toys for old people. There are eight original novels written by producer Lee Goldberg. And two characters from one of the novels appear in... Lee Goldberg's series of novels based on the TV show Monk. So that means they are a confirmed shared universe. That's pretty exciting. Uh, and that's, I don't, I don't actually believe that. I think that's what we call that a, a reference or an Easter egg before, uh, before everything meant yeah. everything. Still fun. Still either fun. way though. Uh, we have some additional fun facts, Great. which I did pull. I pulled all of the info from IMDB. I had to throw it into a spreadsheet and I counted 1,580 individual credits within this series. That's a lot of people. Yeah, it's a lot of people. Um, next was the series 
in the beginning was ordered episode by episode. They did not order full seasons. Dick Van Dyke talks about it in an interview he does uh, about the show. That's very strange. So I did finally confirm what I had read in multiple places cool. from his interview. It seems like this, with the movie, it being a backdoor pilot into movies, into this thing that wasn't ordered as a season, That's a, it must have had a very strange path. It must have. Because you would think, even with just Dick Van Dyke as showrunner, right? There would be... Some interest, yeah. Yeah, or confidence. Well, show, actor, main actor, not really showrunner. Yeah. I guess one of the producers would be showrunner, right? Well, he was an executive producer, too, so... Oh, he was it, an executive it was, producer. It was like, that's right. it was a project he was definitely interested in, so... Well, I think he was really excited to work with his son, because they talk about that in that next oh, yeah. fact, right? The This is the second attempt that Dick and Barry had when they tried to work together. The first one... Well, this was the successful attempt. The first one was a, a very short-lived failed sitcom called The Van Dyke Show. It had 10 episodes. It aired in 1988. It was a, um, a show about a gentleman and his father uh, where the father was a Broadway star who retired and then goes to live with his son. And they just run like a small playhouse in rural Pennsylvania. And that's where the show went through. All right. So, yeah, you got your there. And then uh, I think that's all we got for today. We, we did, did it. Yeah, we, we did, did the whole thing. Um, next episode will be The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest. Oh, I'm so pumped about this one. Um, and, you know, drop us a line if you enjoyed anything at 90schmaltz, S-C-H-M-A-L-T-Z, at gmail.com. Check out our website at 90schmaltz.cool. Or please also leave us a review on anywhere you listen to your podcast. Wonderful. See you next time. See you next time. Before we wrap this up, how about one more for the world? Yeah. Okay. Yours? Fine with me. I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter. Yeah. <laughs> and make believe it came from you. Ooh, I'm going to write for it so, so sweet. They're going to knock me off my feet. A lot of kisses on the bottom. And I make a letter. I'm gonna smile and say, I hope you're feeling better. Yeah. <laughs> then I'll close with love the way you do. Yeah. I wanna sit right down and let myself a love, baby. And make believe it came from you. Why'd you stop? Hit it, maestro. I'm gonna smile and say, I hope you're feeling better. <laughs> and close with love the way you do. Locally, you got water running in the background again. I'm gonna have to tell everyone to stop using the bathroom.